This episode of Creative Control is brought to you by Verizon, the network America relies on. I'm your host, Casey Finey, and this is Creative Conversation, a Fast Company podcast. I think most of us know Nate Berkus as that lovable interior designer who used to do home makeovers for The Oprah Winfrey Show. But before Oprah and well after, Nate has been honing his craft for design for more than two decades. Actually, January marks the 25th anniversary of his design firm. In our conversation, Nate walks through his career to unpack the creative and business insights he's learned along the way, like why having his own show is the worst job of his life, how he's flexing his new creative muscles in Hollywood, and why creativity is rooted in the joy of experience. Well, Nate, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. Thank you. I'm trying to be a, like my mature self here because <laughs> it's Fast Company and it's you. But no, so you just you just lost it right there because I'm not mature. Fast Company is. I have no idea why it's I work here. It's going downhill. It's fine. So <laughs> we're starting from the bottom. We're going to like work our way up through this conversation to some level of maturity. <laughs> I mean, I want to start with, you know, when you think back to, you know, your childhood, your teen years, you know, young adult years. How would you describe that initial spark for design and creativity that would ultimately shape what's become your life? Like, what was that initial spark? That's a great question. Um, it actually is really easy for me to answer, too, because my mother was an interior designer. Mm. And she filled our home with vintage things and old things and things that had a story and things that had character. And our home was constantly evolving as a kid. I went away to school, and when I would come back, I would like be carrying my like little bag down to my room, and she'd be like, no, your room, that actually now is a study room. Your room <laughs> is upstairs between your sister and the dog. And I'd be like, great. <laughs> decorative so turmoil. It, just it like... was decorative turmoil. It was new wall coverings and you know window treatments being switched out. But I think what it was more than anything was, and people who... I'm friends with who grew up in a home with parents who are very sensitive to design and their environment, it was that the permission to let your home be an experimental space mm. really resonated for me. And I remember thinking, you don't have to always live the same way. You actually really can take an hour on a weekend and take that chest from the entry and put it in the dining room and add a pair of lamps and hang a mirror and all of a sudden the energy in the space shifts. And I've always, I think since I've been a kid, been super sensitive to the energy of a space. Yeah. So design felt like a natural fit for me. And clearly it was because, I mean, you started your interior design firm, Nate Burkett's Associates, at, what, 24 years I old? did, and I'm 26. Oh, there you go. <laughs> Happy two-year anniversary. <laughs> Thank you very much. I'm so honored to be recognized by this publication for two solid years of work. Just rapid innovation. Just two years is amazing. Wow. <laughs> so, I mean, from then to now, how would you say your approach to design has evolved? Who you know, was I Young Nate young as Nate a designer? Was, young Nate was much more fear-based. Young really? Nate wanted to make a buck. Um, you know, Young Nate was starting a business in Chicago. Mm -hmm. I had graduated from college a year before. I worked for an auction house for one solid year. How'd that go? Um, it was good. Yeah? It was actually really good. I'm still very good friends with Leslie Hindman, who mm -hmm. owns the auction house in Chicago. Um, she was more of a mentor to me. I've always had a strong woman behind me. You know, hey. that's been a theme. Don't um, we all? Yeah, right? Or we should. Well, now raising a daughter and a son, I think I've always held fast to the conviction that like men should be in charge of nothing, not economic, <laughs> not not political, nothing. 
And now with a son and a daughter, I'm absolutely convinced that's true. But anyway, a Leslie, right? I mean, Leslie not... <laughs> was Leslie was amazing. She she really sort of stuck her neck out. I was a terrible assistant. The oh. woman I worked underneath used to go into Leslie's office and cry to tell her that I'm I should be fired. What and were instead, you doing? I just I've always kind of really honed in on what was interesting to me. And basically ignored everything that to hell wasn't. With everything else. Yeah, yeah, I'm always like la la la, like <laughs> Charles Schultz. Like I don't hear things that I that don't captivate me. And so um, Leslie got that and put me in charge of this stuff, and it was great. And I think you know when I started my firm, my main concern was I didn't want to work for someone else, and I wanted to have my own schedule. Mm-hmm. And I was dating somebody that owned their own company at the time, and I watched what the stress of that was, and I thought I can handle that. And I watched what the freedom in that was, and I thought, I need that. And so for, so who would you say Nate is now as a designer? So if you were more fear-based back then, like how, how have you evolved? Well, my fear now is that I don't have the patience to deal with the bullshit that I used to deal with. Fair. Because I'm 48 years old, and I'm like, ugh, really? <laughs> um, still singing the same song, toting around a picture of a sofa, trying to sell it? It's unbelievable. <laughs> But I think the truth is, is that I'm much, much more confident. And I also have the great honor and joy of having a staff of people who have worked for me. Many, my, my partner in my design firm started as an intern, Lauren Buxbaum Gordon, and she started 17 years ago. Mm. So, I mean, I, we, have a, we are a family. We know exactly what everybody's strong suit is. We know exactly what's challenging and what takes a little too much time for one person to do so somebody else steps in and does it. We have a rhythm. We have a system. And that system's been honed over 24 years of work. Mm. So when we work with a client, for instance, who doesn't want to work with our system, we're like, mm, you guys, right. I'm really sorry. Like You may have renovated some homes and done some things in your time, but the truth is, is that this is what works for us. This mm-hmm. is how we don't make major mistakes. This is how we keep this as fun and lighthearted, even though there's 10,000 details with every project. And we're going to have to insist that this is how we do it. Right. And so, you know, in those early days, you're, of course, you know, not only building a client base, you're also building, you know, your own philosophy around design and creativity in general, I would imagine. And so, you know, what was your perception of the creative process back then? Because I think a lot of people may have an idea of how they want to attack a problem or they want to attack, you know, in your case, how do you how do you attack a room? How do you visualize a room? So for you, when it comes to your process, how would you say that's evolved over the years? So one way that it, my process hasn't evolved mm-hmm. is that I've always been deeply rooted in history. I've always mm-hmm. been fascinated by it. I've always been fascinated in history, sociology, anthropology, and I've always looked very closely and carefully and been very open to ideas and layouts and combinations of things that have been done historically, whether that's historic homes or interiors or um, the extensive library of design books that I have added to and added to as the years go on, and now total probably close to 1,500. But, um, you know, I started my firm pre-internet. No one even really had a flip right. phone. So, you know, we, or I think we just got, like, razors. Hey, they're so cool. And they're back. Um, I know. I want one. I do, too. I'm not even kidding. I, I really I really want do. One. <laughs> um, but I think what was um, – so that has always been a constant. Mm-hmm. What's come before? How can that be reinterpreted in a way that feels modern and feels special? 
it's a little bit of a creative cop-out. I'm not the artist designer. I'm much more of a business person than I am a designer. I've managed to function as both, mm. but I'm not the guy that looks at a, at a blank white piece of paper and thinks this is what the room should be. Right. I'm the guy who says, I love this element from France in the 1940s. What if we match that with this idea from Italy in the mm -hmm. 1970s and this historic interior from Egypt or this village in Egypt that doesn't have electricity? Let's, let's figure out what that whole thing could look like. Mm -hmm. And so I, I've always sort of picked and chosen from these different categories, different eras, and tried to create something that no one's seen before, but with a historical reference. Right. What has changed is my confidence around it. Mm. You know, it's, it, I used to go into a, a presentation and think, I don't really care what they buy. Because I'm not offering them any ugly options. <laughs> right. But, you know, there's always like three or four options for each piece of furniture in a space. And I used to think, well, it doesn't really matter. And now it matters a great deal. Mm -hmm. Because I wanted to, I went from wanting to get the sale and lock the sale. And it would be fine. Right. But now I always fight for sort of what I think is the best option. Hmm. And I'm that guy now that I used to joke about with my early clients where I'd be like, oh, you know, it's not ego-based. You know, I, I want you guys to, like, just, you know, really love each selection. And now I'm like, no, no, no. You guys can love 70% of the selection, but I'm going to force you to do the other 30 because <laughs> I've done this for so long, and right. I know that it's going to be better. Right, right. And I kind of want to go back to something you mentioned earlier when you said you were uh, a terrible assistant because you kind of had blinders to what everyone else was saying. You like were just type a folk. letter to a <laughs> banker? Like put a gun in my mouth. Like, no, thank you. So, I mean, I think to, on one end, that can be a good thing. You know, you, you can, it sounds like you are an incredibly focused person and you know exactly what you want, which I think that that's great. But on the other end, you know, listening to other people's feedback, doing kind of things that are expected of you, even if you don't want to do them, those are also important. So how have you found that balance? Like, how have you, have you lifted the blinders a bit or? Yeah. I mean, I've had to, obviously yeah. as a business owner, as a father, mm -hmm. I mean, you know, I don't believe you can compartmentalize anything in life. Mm -hmm. I don't think you can have a, a soaring, wonderful business and a shitty home life. Yeah. I think it all kind of goes hand in hand. And I think, you know, of course I've had to take the blinders off. All I do lately is like change diapers. So I mean, that's also <laughs> not my favorite activity, but I also don't want my son to like walk around smelling like a train station. That would be ideal. Um, Thank you for I, that. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, no, I think um, the most important thing is to not lose sight of being in a customer service mm -hmm. position because at the, the end of the day, I'm the help. Yeah. You know, so and I know that and I don't care how many times I've been on TV or how many licensing deals I have or publishing deals or even if I might have more money than the people that I'm working with. The bottom line is I chose to be in a creative business that is in the service industry. Mm -hmm. So ultimately, the, they really are always right. Yeah. And I was to that end, you know, how how would you say your personal sense of creativity or your creative sensibilities have developed working within other people's visions? So for you yourself, yeah, you know how how has working with different clients affected your personal creativity? So I think it's made me more solution driven, mm. and it's made me more creative. You never really have. I don't care really who you are. I mean, there may be a couple of designers in the last fifty years that have been given carte blanche, no budget, no direction, no preferences. Right. Just go do this house in Spain and we'll move in when you tell us we can. That doesn't really exist in the real world. It certainly hasn't existed for me. 
And so I think, you know, what makes you a good designer is the ability to listen, the ability to empathize, the ability to be sensitive to what the client is saying and also to read the cues that they're not saying. Are they insecure because they just made all this money? Mm. You know, do they want everything to make a statement about who they, how they perceive themselves or wish to perceive themselves? Are they super secure and they're not doing this to impress anybody? They're literally doing it because when they come in at the end of the day, they want to close the door and be in an environment that reflects them 100%. You have to be able to work with either. Right. And you have your, your design firm in Chicago, you're making moves, you're hustling, and of course, your big break came when you got the call from Oprah's production team, I would assume. That, I would assume that's your big break, not to yeah, minimize no, everything like my, else that you've like done. It's fourth, fifth break <laughs> down the line. Yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> what can you do? What can you say? That didn't, that didn't suck. <laughs> and it, for that, I mean, it was they reached out for you to do um, a home makeover segment on the Oprah Winfrey show. And so when you look back at that experience, I mean, like, how would you say it changed you, if at all, as a designer? So I'm 26 years old. Mm-hmm. We've, and, we've established yeah, yes. I'm yes. sitting. Well, no, actually, when that call <laughs> yeah. happened, when that call came in, I really was 26 years old. But I'm sitting at my desk, and I thought, you know, I can do this. The truth is, though, um, the producer called and said, "We we want you to do this small space makeover in Boston," and I said, "That would be great." And they said, would you be interested in in doing it? And I said, of course. And they said, great, we need you to gather your plumber, your electrician, your carpenter, your painters, everybody, and put them, get them to drive to Boston right now, and we're going to meet there tomorrow at 10 a.m. And I said, I need 15 minutes, and I'll call you back. Knowing full well I wasn't going to ask any of my trade people to to do that. No No one's doing that. So I called the producer back, and I said, look, I just thought about this for a minute, and I think what would be really much smarter is if your team at Harpo reached out to a national retailer that knows trades in every major city. Let's say we do really well, and this is something that we end up doing over and over. Why don't we set ourselves up now for success? Like I bet the big home improvement chain with a location probably 15 minutes from this makeover knows who the best electrician and plumber in in, in the Boston area. So they called me back 15 minutes later and they said, great, everybody's on board. We need you on a plane. And I said, perfect, I'll, I'll meet you there. I worked with the same production team from that day till 15 years later. Wow. They became my family, they became my friends, they taught me that nothing's impossible, they taught me that nothing is too scary to ask for out loud. Mm. Um, that's all obviously a trickle down. Yeah. Um, but I think it was one of the most magical experiences of my life. I also was very conscious of the fact that the Oprah Winfrey Show was on the air for 25 years, five days a week. Mm. Some of those were reruns, summertime, but most of them weren't which means a lot of people besides me had the same opportunity. Right. A lot of designers, a lot of chefs, a lot of fashion designers, of a lot of makeup people, whoever. And I knew that I didn't want to blow it. And so every single time I was invited to be on that show, even when I already had a contract and you know all these other sources of income as a result of being on that show, I treated it as if it were my first. Hmm. So I was the last person to leave the location. I made sure the producers were comfortable with everything. I made sure that the clients and the homeowners were fine and that we were leaving the home better than we found it. And if we had even damaged like the paint on the ceiling with a microphone stick, mm-hmm. we made I made sure that somebody was going back to repaint it. And I think that the work ethic is what kept me there. 
yes, the audience can, and I had a connection. Mm-hmm. Oprah and I still have a connection. She's like my favorite person to have lunch with outside of my I family. Bet. But um, she's so funny. Oh my God, she's the funniest I mean. person in the world. <laughs> but you know, the, it wasn't just that. It was the fact that I think the teams, down to the sound person and the camera people and the everybody could all say this guy we really like working with this guy is this guy's the real deal like he's he's not gonna dial it in he's not taking credit for anybody else's work my fingertips touched every vase everything Mm -hmm. on every bookshelf every accessory on a coffee table i put the bread in the basket in the kitchen so you know that that mattered to me and it mattered to them and it still matters This episode of Creative Control is brought to you by Verizon, the network you can rely on for your phone and for your home internet. Find the plan that's right for you at verizon.com. So from your work on the Oprah Winfrey Show, you you, you yourself started to become a brand. I mean, even outside of Chicago, because obviously you'd built up a pretty amazing clientele, but nationwide people were seeing you know this guy nate burkus who yeah. was you know it was actually international Inter- exa- i was in beirut Even- and these like girls from saudi arabia were like oh my god we love you and i was like i am so famous <laughs> look at me at this nightclub <laughs> what that's the thing so i mean you, that? you are a brand and, and it, it just kind of made me think of this idea of the blank as a celebrity so like the chef is a celebrity the entrepreneur is a celebrity and how did having that larger platform change how you viewed your own career, if it did at all? So Martha Stewart paved the way for everybody, like mm-hmm. in home, in design, is my full belief. Right. She made it interesting and accessible and fun to change your environment mm-hmm. and organize your environment and live better and live live more beautifully. I like to think that I came in at a really like screeching close second where I decided that the philosophy behind my career was going to be two things. One, to give people permission to make the changes. And the furniture industry and the decoration industry and the window treatment industry, everything's evolved Mm -hmm. in the last 25 years, like beyond belief. But I wanted people to know that it was okay and actually cool to express their personality in their homes through design and not worry about what was on the cover of every magazine or what the color of the year was. The second thing um, which sort of dovetails with that is that I've always believed that our homes should tell our stories. And the way we do that is through our things and the choices that we make and what we let come through the threshold. Mm-hmm. And so from a sociological perspective, when I'm working with somebody, whether it's on television or a private client, my first questions are, who are you? Like, who are you guys? Where's your family from? What's the cultural history? What's important to you? Where have you been? Where would you like to go? What's the history here of you people? I'm meeting you and it's a very accelerated process, but I really, I really want to know what are you proud of? What are you proud of in your life that can come through in these decisions that we're, that I'm going to make on your behalf Mm -hmm. in, in the case of TV in your home? Yeah. And, you know, with TV, you, of course, had your own show. Mm-hmm. I think in 2010, the Nate Burke show. Worst job in my life. <laughs> That's what I was going to ask. I mean, because I actually remember the show. And it, it was it, it was a good show. Oh, I, awful. I, <laughs> I enjoyed it. it listen, was... I mean no disrespect to all the people that worked on that show. And to and yourself. I'm still I mean, very, <laughs> no, listen, I am not meant to be a daytime talk show host Why? with my own show 
for an hour every single day. I don't have enough to talk about for an hour every single day. <laughs> and I don't actually think, listen, I had a very, very, I held this conviction and belief that what we were doing at the time was not current. Like if somebody mm. wanted to know a great way to make chicken, they weren't tuning into NBC at four o'clock in the afternoon to figure that out. Right. They were on their phone, they were gonna figure it out and it would be faster and they'd have 30 choices and they wouldn't have to look at me wearing a vest like Teddy Ruxpin. <laughs> oh, don't do Teddy like that. I mean, don't, <laughs> listen, nobody did Teddy like I did Teddy. <laughs> I mean, that's the thing. I feel like it, I always find it interesting when you have these learning moments on such a big scale because this isn't this isn't something that you just kind of you you realize this wasn't for you behind closed doors or something um, this was like no hell no you know, like, so in that sort of powder keg environment of having your own tv show of it being such an aggressive schedule yeah and you realizing that it wasn't for you i mean how how would you say that shaped you you know, you always hear people in business and in, in creative fields say you have to be true to your own voice. You have mm -hmm. to stand firm with your conviction. You have to be the most solid person at the table when you're the creative. And I've always known that, and I didn't do that. I didn't demand to not make chicken five days a week. What changed, and I, though? I, I mean, I, well, first of all, I'm like Goldie Hawn in Overboard. Like, I have no, I was like, I prepared and handled raw food. That doesn't sound like me. So I was like, oh, like, you know, and then the producers were like, no, it's really funny that you won't touch the chicken. And I was like, is it? Um, but, you know, we did some great things on that show. I have yeah. to say, we had an interview with Elizabeth Edwards uh, before she passed away that I'll mm -hmm. never forget. It was she and I in her, in her bed in North Carolina, like, just talking through what life is about and her love of design and furniture, but also her, her life and her kids sent me this beautiful note afterwards saying it was their favorite interview that their mother had ever done. Oh, wow. So, I mean, there, there were victories and there were some real moments in yeah. that. And, you know, you can't do all crap for two years and, and then walk away. But I think I, I don't know, I, I, I knew better. I knew better. I knew I had to like speak up and I, I didn't have the right team around me at the time. And I, I, I was scared and uh, there's all these focus groups and everybody's saying like, well, the focus groups really want to know how to make chicken. And you're like, what? Do, what? No, they don't. They can't. Where are these focus groups coming from? Where are you finding these people? Like the summary of like your two years is just you wound up with a very complicated relationship with chicken. I still have it. Like, <laughs> literally like I, I like Jeremiah like pulls out a chicken breast and I'm like, oh. <laughs> Make it go away. I want it in a white cube, already done, preferably a, in Thai food. This is a veal-only household from <laughs> exactly, now on. Exactly. But, I mean, so obviously now, I mean, you're not just an interior designer. You have various lines and products. You have another TV show with Jeremiah. And, you know, you're just doing, you've kind of spread your brand far and wide, really. And so to that end, what have you learned about scaling your creativity and possibly the limits of it? Because I think the, the Nate Burkus show kind of showed you what you didn't want yeah. out of it. So how did you kind of retool that and still manage to build your brand, but yeah. do it your way? I would do a talk show again, mm -hmm. just not me alone for an hour on a stage. Right. If there was like a co-host, great. If it was like, you know, a network that wasn't so worried about the daytime audience, great. And chicken. The world in chicken. <laughs> the world's changed. Right. Um, what I've learned, so what I know for sure, to borrow from a buddy, Mm -hmm. I would say there's no limit to my creativity. 
I'm never going to like expand into another product category and be like, wow, greeting cards. I'm really stumped. What did that look like? <laughs> like I'm, I, I have like enough and I have the best people that work with me. Everybody works for me. Mm -hmm. I don't hire out agencies like um, for the creative stuff. Everyone has dental insurance and a 401k and they've been there for years. So we have all these patterns and archives of things and we work so beautifully with, with our partners. But I would say there's a tendency that I've always had to reach for the most commercial opportunity. Hmm. And that doesn't mean I've ever been a sellout. You know, people have offered me lots of money back in the day to sit on a toilet at a home improvement convention and be like, this is the best toilet. <laughs> I've never always said no. But I will say that, um, you know, now what I'm really interested in more than anything is expanding into foreign markets. Mm -hmm. That was a bit of a missed opportunity for me because Oprah was in 146 countries, I believe. And so I sh I'd love to bring the brand to Asia. I, I would love, I love being in Asia. I love traveling still. So that's a goal, um, mm. sort of more of the same, but tailored to the different markets, I think. And I think that there's something really interesting about, you know, the way people are shopping now. I'm fascinated. Um, I'm interested in how I shop now. You know, I will stand in a store and, and get on my phone and try and figure out how I can get it faster and for less money. And I think, you know, if I'm doing that, everybody's doing that. Yeah. So um, I think that there is, there's some interesting partnerships coming up for me that are about a pivot with the brand that feel really solid. I have great respect for the companies that I've worked with. Target, mm -hmm. I've worked with for years. They're right. terrific. The bedding and the towels at Target do really, really well. The quality is great. The Shade Store is an awesome partner. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm not going to run through because it's not you've an infomercial. I mean, but hey. Yeah, exactly. And you've got plenty going Order on. Order now. <laughs> just in time for the holidays. Thanks so much, Fast Company. Um, no, but, you know, they're, 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 I really do like working with the different cultures, mm -hmm. and I don't want to give that up. But I think that I don't think there's a limit to the creativity. I do think that it's probably more important to maintain how centralized my brand has become mm -hmm. at, at sort of at, at all costs and um, continue to kind of do the work and put out their products that I still really like and right. use. Right. And, you know, speaking of scaling creativity, one thing that I don't think enough people know, I certainly didn't know until I was doing research for this interview, is that you're an executive producer on The Help. Yeah. So for that, I mean, I find it so interesting. I mean, how did that come about and do you see yourself leaning deeper into producing more films or narrative TV shows? Yeah, I mean, so I am producing some some more television mm -hmm. shows and I also am in the process of producing an, uh, another film. It's an incredible story that it's called Little Princes. It's about an orphanage mm -hmm. for boys in Nepal and it's a book written by my friend Connor Grennan and he and I have been working for the last five years on getting the film made. And we wanted it to be a major motion picture, not a documentary. Mm -hmm. Everyone was like, here's a documentary. And we're like, eh, no. Um, no one really wanted a movie about that when Obama was president. Everyone's like, we're fine. <laughs> now everybody's like, give us a story right. that makes us feel good. Please, anything. Does anybody, what about that orphanage in Nepal story? Get Nate Burkus on the phone. Does he still have the rights to that stuff? So now everybody wants it. So we're, we're producing the film and it's great. It, so I am interested in that. Not... Mm -hmm 
to move away from design, not to move away from home, because it really is what I love. It's mm-hmm. what I've done since now, since I was 22 years old. And yeah. and as a, a kid, I rearranged my bedroom every day and spent my allowance on stuff from garage sales and whatever. But I do, I am really interested in the business side of it. And it's a different creative muscle to flex, to find these properties and projects that you really feel great about. The Help was obviously one of them. Um, I read the book in galley form. It was the first time uh, novel by a first time author, Catherine Stockett. And um, her best friends were the producers at the time. And nobody had any money but me. So Mm. I invested really early and was like, yeah, I believe in this. I love this. I sent the pages of that book unbound to my mom and was like, do you like this book? And she was like, this is amazing. And then it became this book club pick. And then it became the film. And it launched the careers of a lot of really talented actresses. That's amazing. That's really, really cool. And, you know, I think that you mentioned earlier, because we've been kind of talking and I know that you're coming up. I think it's going to be in in January. It's going to be your 25th anniversary right yep. of the yep. of your firm and so you, know, you mentioned that it's something that you still really love but have you ever fallen out of love with it have you ever reached a point like where you just had a burnout with what you're doing no really never that is surprising yeah never how i don't know <laughs> tell me your because it always evolves yeah. you know design always evolves our spaces can always evolve and and everything is constantly being refreshed and re energized and revisited and reinterpreted and no I've always loved it I've always I'm that guy that comes home after like a eight-hour sightseeing thing in a foreign capital and sees an ad in a magazine for like an antique market and I'm like antiques market and I'm like I'm getting back in the taxi my feet are purple and I look like my grandfather and I'm gonna go find a sconce Hey, priorities. Exactly. (laughs) And, you know, but I feel like for you, what has been, when you think about all of, you know, the the extensive catalog and and history that you have of just designing homes and designing spaces, designing buildings, all of this, has there ever been a project, or guess what, which project have you felt most stuck on? Like, what was your biggest creative challenge within a project? It's actually our house now. Really? Our family home here in New York City. Yeah, it's a architecture that neither Jeremiah nor I have ever lived in. So it's a townhouse. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's very hard. Like, it's a really hard house. Like, we thought we were going to... I'm not the guy that typically, like, buys things and then puts them where they, I think they're going to go and goes, eh, no. And both of us have done that. Like, we're <laughs> on our third rug for the family room. It's being delivered this week. And I don't know why. Like, everybody who comes in is like, no, it's so beautiful. It's amazing. And we're like, uh I think the, our home in California was the easiest home we, I've right. ever done because it was so special to me, the architecture and the light and the space and the the opportunity was so special. I felt so grateful that I was living that life. Mm -hmm. I'm even more grateful to be back in New York City with my family, but the house has been a real challenge. Mm. And we love it. We love everything. We love where it is. We love the spaces. We like that we've downsized so significantly, but I don't I don't, I don't, I don't know, but we better get our act together because our, you know, they're they're coming to shoot it soon. So that's what I'm gonna say. So, I mean, like, when in this particular example, how are you cracking that? Like, is it just a matter of like you stopping and looking and saying like, okay, let me just really think about this, or is it pulling? So, like, how do you how do you crack, do you crack a design it? 
challenge. You 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 are sitting there with you know takeout <laughs> Thai food, <laughs> and you're looking around the room, and then you get up and you start pushing chairs around, and you start pulling things off of shelves, and you start unhanging photos and paintings and oh, things like that. It's a nightmare. <laughs> I mean, and I'm not the only one that does it. Like we, Jer and I, have to be like kind of in the same mood to get it going. Because usually, like, even last night, we got back from Los Angeles really late with both kids. My son is like a banshee. He's 20 months old. He was, like, screaming for no reason, just for no reason. As they do at that yeah, age. Yeah, I was like, wow, Oscar. <laughs> um, and Jared was like, do you think we should move that? And I was like, I'm not touching anything right now. Like, I'm so tired. I don't want to, I don't care. I don't, I actually don't care. I don't care if Architectural Digest comes to photograph this house at 9 a.m. That's how tired I am. I don't give a shit. <laughs> um, so we didn't do it, but I know I'm going back to Chicago for my office's year end things mm -hmm. and our holiday party. And I know I'm going to walk back into a totally different house because there's no way Jerry's just going to sit there and not do what he wants to do. <laughs> I don't blame him. I would do the same thing. And you're used to that, you know, coming yeah, home no, to like totally a dinner party. never into, listen, there's more, there's always more than one solution to any space. And if, you know, if the ego was involved it, it a that would translate in mm -hmm. in the work that i do outside of the home but i'm not interested i'd rather stay married and not like what's on the mantle <laughs> and you know one thing i always love to ask my guests is how how do you define creativity for yourself because i think it's something that is very subjective it means a lot of different things to a lot of different people i think you know there's kind of the baseline definition of, oh, you create something new, you create something novel. But for you specifically, when you think about this amazing career that you've had, how have you come to define creativity for yourself? I think for me, creativity is rooted in the joy of experience. Hmm. It's having your eyes open all the time to travel, to new color combinations, to catching a glimpse of what somebody's wearing as you pass them on the street. Um, I think that's why I'm so happy here in New York City, because it's constant creative visual stimulation for me that translates irritatingly for like friends who are on a trip with us, with me <laughs> or us, where they're like, you know, why do you have to take photos of every like inlaid floor in every cathedral <laughs> in Sicily? And I was like, because it's a great bed pattern. <laughs> I'm sorry, guys. I'm mood boarding. Like, this like, is God's <laughs> house. I'm like, it's going to be a target in 15 minutes. <laughs> Um, but you know, it's, it, for me, that's, 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 it's never the, the, the creativity comes from never closing down really that part mm -hmm. of my brain. And I'd like to think it's something that I've honed and something that I've become better at, but I've been doing this since I was a, a boy. Yeah. I, I just remember always being really taken with, you know, the way somebody wore their clothes or the way a painting was hung in a museum or the way a mother's girlfriend had organized their bookshelves. Right. Like it's just, I'm always, always taking in the detail. And, um, I think that's probably why I've never had a beat where I was like, oh, you know what? I should be a professional football player. <laughs> <laughs> it's never too late. No, it's never too I late. Know, it's too <laughs> late. <laughs> Trust me. It was too late at 13. <laughs> well, Nate, thank you so much. This has been wonderful. Thanks I really appreciate your time. It's so and much it, fun. I'm to be with telling you. Thanks for listening to Creative Conversation. Be sure to subscribe to Creative Conversation wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you like what you're hearing on this podcast, don't forget to rate and review. We always love hearing your feedback. I'm your host, Casey Finey.